continuing, as you've probably already figured out this morning in this series, again, that we are calling Radical. We're entering into part three of five. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we are so grateful. We are so thankful you decided to walk through our doors. We totally understand that even as an adult, it can feel super intimidating to walk into a new place, but we're so gracious and so thankful that you did decide uh, to show up here today. If you weren't here for the first two weeks of this series, I can't encourage you enough to go to grumlaw.com messages and get yourself caught up there, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. We make a big deal of this every week. We mention this every week uh, because it's so important how every single week kind of builds off of the last in these series. They're not just like this series of isolated messages. They, they build off of the last. And so it's really important that on those weeks that you're not here, you're going to grumlaw.com messages and you're catching yourself up there. Uh, we know that a lot of you are taking advantage of that, but we hope that even more of you start to do so, that, that on those weeks that you're not able to be here, it's just like, oh my goodness, there's something missing. And you just like, you miss seeing me so much that it just kind of fill that void and you go there and catch yourself up. Now we're calling this series Radical uh, because if you were to pick up any uh, historical document that records the early Christian church, whether uh, that be an explicitly religious document such as the Bible and, and the book of Acts uh, or any secular piece of literature for that matter. And remember, when we say church, and as we've been trying to remind you of this during the series, when we say church, we're not talking about a building. Our English word church does a terrible job capturing what Jesus originally intended when he said church. The original word is this Greek word called ekklesia, and ekklesia translated means a congregation or assembly. It's talking about a group of people. It's talking about a community of people. And if you were to pick up any of those historical documents that, again, record the rise of the early Christian church, you would read about people living radically different from those around them. People would literally share everything that they had. If I had something and, and you would benefit from that thing, you could basically treat it was, as if it was yours. You, you could take anything that was mine and, and use it. It was all up for grabs. If it helped you out, then I'm all for it. You can take it. P people would sell things in order to help other people who, who had a desperate need. When somebody came up to them and shared with them, hey, you know, my husband lost his job or I lost my job or, you know, my wife lost her job, that their first reaction wasn't to put their hand on their shoulder and say, hey, you know what? I'm really going to be praying for that. Their first reaction was to start unloading stuff that they still considered valuable and then take that money and give it to those people so that a need was actually being met. When the opportunity came up to serve your fellow man, it wasn't something that people had to be bribed into. It wasn't people, something that people had to be talked into. People would jump at those opportunities. Their behavior stood out. It caught people's attention. It was a dramatic shift from the life that they were living before, before they became Jesus followers. In fact, when you read about the early Christian church, and I've been saying this over these first two weeks, and you compare it with what we have going on today, it's unrecognizable. It doesn't even sound like the same movement. So we all have a choice to make. We can continue on with the 21st century American version of Christianity that, mind you, is completely fraudulent. We can completely disregard the teachings of Jesus and the radical steps of obedience that he asks us to take, or we can take an honest look. We can take an honest look at Jesus and we can dare to ask what the consequences might be if we really believed and obeyed him. And what we discovered last week is that this version of Christianity, the version of Christianity that abandons you, that gives up your own way and, and, and listens to those promptings that God puts on your heart, not only is it attractive, 
It's irresistible. That the reason that the first century church was an unstoppable force that nobody could stand in the way of, it had nothing to do with compelling communicators. It had nothing to do with good music. It had nothing to do with excellent programming. It had everything to do with people. People living radically different. Changed lives were what grabbed the attention of other people. A radically different life is contagious. And the reason that the Christian church is dying, and, and I'm not just saying that to be dramatic, it, it's definitely headed in the wrong direction. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus has not changed. It has everything to do with Christians. People who identify as Christians, people who wear that label of Christian in America aren't living their lives in such a way that it's enticing. There's nothing attractive about it. It's lukewarm, it's watered down. The very thing that made Christianity a force to be reckoned with, radical life change and a reckless obedience to whatever Christ asked you to do, it is gone missing. I mean, we hear these stories that come from other parts of the world and we can hardly imagine. I mean, people sacrificing everything, their livelihoods, their financial security, their families, their friends, their own lives in some cases for the privilege of having a relationship with Jesus. But I'm telling you, and, and I believe this with all my heart, we can reclaim that. We can change course. We can again become that unstoppable force. I promise you I believe that. If I didn't, I would not be sitting in front of you today. Years ago, I remember uh, reading uh, about a seminary that uh, is in Indonesia. It still exists to this day. A seminary, for those of you that don't know, it's basically like a graduate program for people that want to enter into the full-time ministry. Most people that step out of seminary end up being pastors. But the requirements at the seminary in Indonesia, which is largely a Muslim country, are, are pretty astounding. Before you graduate, you have to start a church where at least 30 people convert from Islam to Christianity and they are publicly baptized. I mean, think of the quality of individuals that are stepping out of that seminary. There's a guy by the name of Raiden um, that he graduated from the seminary, which meant, again, that he started a church where already 30 people converted from Islam to Christianity. Again, let your heads wrap around that for a second. Pretty unbelievable. And he spoke on his commencement day in that commencement ceremony and he shared about uh, before his graduation, there was a particular uh, occasion where he was going into an unreached village uh, where people had literally never heard the name of Jesus before. And he's there and he's, he's sharing about Jesus and apparently the witch doctor living in that town got wind of it and, and wasn't too thrilled with this. And the witch doctor comes and confronts Raiden and uh, he wants to fight him. Now little, little does this witch doctor know that Raiden before entering into the ministry and becoming and having this desire to become a pastor, he's a master ninja jujitsu fighter. So Raiden in this moment is kind of like, okay, I could really just make a fool of this guy. But before he's kind of ready to just like, I don't know, like, whoo, like do something real quick and just take this guy down, he hears an audible voice from God that tells him, you don't do the fighting anymore, I do the fighting for you. And so he takes out a chair and he sits down in front of the witch doctor and he says just that. He says, I don't do the fighting, my God does the fighting for me. And almost immediately the witch doctor begins grasping for air. Moments later, he's now collapsed, and within minutes, he's dead. And Raiden looks at this and thinks, well, this is probably a good opportunity to tell these people about Jesus. And he does. And many people in that village that day put their faith in Christ for the very first time. And I read those types of stories, and I hear those testimonies firsthand from people. And I watch videos like that played right before I jumped up, right before I jumped up here. These persecution stories that happen all around our globe, and it reminds me that 2,000 years ago, 
When Christians proclaim the name of Jesus, they cause the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise. That evil spirits fled, and even the most hardened of hearts were turned to God. And guess what? That power is still available today. That power is every bit is available to every single one of us today. It, it would be really, really easy to listen to the first two weeks of this series and think to yourselves, uh, this sounds terrifying. Uh, I want to get as far away from this whole Christianity thing as I possibly can. But we have to remember that we are not going at this fight alone. The same power that, again, caused the blind to see and the lame to walk, the same power that Heiwu taps into on the other side of the world is still every bit is available to every single one of you that are sitting here today. You know, this whole church planting, church starting thing kind of has a way of humbling you, as my wife and I have found. You're constantly in positions where if God doesn't come through, you're in a lot of trouble, like you're kind of screwed. Um, and we've seen that manifest itself in so many different ways. I remember about two years ago when, when we felt like, okay, we knew the place. Okay, we're supposed to plant this church in Grand Blank. We don't know anything about Grand Blank, but okay, we're, we're just going to do it. And I remember my wife and I writing down 30. We said, God, if we can get 30 people, if we can sucker 30 adults into coming along on this journey with us, we might just be able to make this thing happen. And we prayed over that number and we begged God to just bring us more people. We're like, God, we just need 30 adults. By the time that we launched this church back in January, we had 87 people on that core team. A lot of you are, are, are sitting in these seats right now. And the crazy thing about that, everybody assumes that when, when I've shared that so many times, they assume, okay, well, those are all your friends and all your buddies. The vast majority of those people, I had no idea who they were a year ago. God just seemingly was just kept dropping him out of the sky to the point that if I was to try to take credit for any of it, it would sound so ridiculous. Andrea shared when she was up here uh, that we just bought that 15-passenger van for, for 323, which is such an honor and a blessing to, to do that. But I'll be honest, when, when Joe called me and said, hey, you know, we have this need, my, my first reaction was no, because again, we're a church plant. We're nine months into this. The, I'll tell you how much it cost. It was $5,000. It was a great deal, but we were still like, oh my goodness, this feels like a lot of money. I mean, are we just being reckless at this point? And so I prayed about it and I prayed about it and God just kept telling me, yes, yes, yes. And I kept saying, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? And he's like, I'm, I'm sure, Shay, just buy the van. And so we, we, end up, we end up buying it and it feels kind of nerve wracking. Two days later, I get a call from one of our supporting churches here uh, in the state, a church that supports us monthly. And they let us know that, that some additional money was kind of found in their church starting budget. And they let us know that they're going to be sending an additional check. Anybody want to take a stab at, at how much that check was for? $5,000. 48 hours later. See, the question is not whether that power is available to us. The, 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 whether, the, the question is not, okay, is God paying attention to us? It's whether or not we trust in him. See, see, in our American culture, really more than anywhere else, we are tempted. We're tempted to trust in ourselves rather than God. As we said throughout the series, our, our world loves promoting you. Our world loves lifting you up. Our, our world loves getting you to believe that you are number one. And one of the more subtle dangers into this line of thinking, and this, this pertains to you whether you call yourself a Jesus follower or not, is that your greatest asset is your own ability. And meanwhile, the central message of Christianity, what Jesus is trying to drive home to all of us, is this idea that you should abandon you that you should give up your own way. 
You can't trust you when you, when you embrace what Christianity is all about. You can't trust you because you've already given up on you. That ship has already sank. So you're le- left with God, a reckless obedience and dependence on him. And so here's the challenge for us and the seemingly ludicrous question that I'm going to ask you to wrestle with. Will you live in such a way that you're radically dependent on and desperate for the power that only God can provide? Are you willing to put yourselves in situations where if God does not come through, you're in trouble? That that, that if God doesn't seemingly bail you out, then you're in a lot, a lot of trouble. You are absolutely desperate. Now listen, I recognize that if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, especially this like the first time you've walked into a church in a long, long time, this sounds like such a stupid question. I mean, you look at this and you think, well, why would anybody ever do that? I want to share with you a a story that I think maybe helps illustrate that this isn't as absurd of a proposition as it maybe seems here on the front end. We we find this story, it's a true story, uh, in the book of John. John is one of the four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that document Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. So we go here to the book of John in chapter 5. It says, inside the city, the city being the city of Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. It's a pretty sad scene. It's basically this collection of human suffering, this collection of people that are attaching themselves to this faint hope that maybe someday they will eventually be healed. And we're told why they were you know, latching onto this. Go to the next one. It says, waiting for a certain movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water. And the first person to step in, the, the, step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, again, this is some of the stuff that, again, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, you go, this is why I don't believe the Bible. I mean, this stuff is just ridiculous. Did these things actually happen? I have a lot of friends that are actually missionaries in, in, in other countries. And these sorts of things, these miraculous healings, they happen all the time. And I remember being so skeptical of reading this stuff in the Bible and thinking that there's no way. But for whatever reason, in these third world countries, I mean, it seems like this stuff occurs all the time. We'll kind of maybe touch on here in just a minute why we don't see this stuff happen as much in America. But basically, the gist of this is there's all these pools, and pools are exactly what they sound like. They're, They're pools of water. And every once in a while, completely at random, some of the water would stir up. And then all these sick, crippled, and lame people, it would be like a bum rush to try to get to the water because if you were the first person to get your toe into it, you were suddenly healed. I mean, think of the chaos that must have ensued when this water started stirring up. It said one of the men, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. 38 years. Try to imagine how hopeless this guy must have been. 38 years is a long time. Desperation would probably not begin to describe this guy's mental state. You can probably hear my voice. I've had the flu this week and haven't felt terribly well. And I remember after like one day of it, I'm lying in bed going, God, why won't you take this from me? I feel so sick. This guy was 38 years. I'm like, okay. I'm like literally like practicing this sermon, like looking over my notes going, this is so terrible. Oh, I guess it's not really that bad. 38 years is, is much, much longer. It says, when Jesus saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like 
to get well. Now, talk about the all-time rhetorical, dumb question, right? I mean, can you imagine if, again, you had been sitting there for 38 years, and Jesus comes up and says, hey, would you like to get well? What do you think? Why else would I be sitting here for the last 38 years? Of course I want to get well. Jesus, are you kidding? Why, why would you ask such a glaringly obvious question? Would you like to get well? But I don't think that Jesus is being a smart aleck here. I think he's actually revealing something that, that we often miss. That Jesus does not force himself upon anyone. If you're new to this whole church, this whole Christianity thing, and maybe you've been kind of waiting for this moment where, where God comes down and speaks to you in an audible voice, or he comes down in a vision and he's like, hey, follow me. I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but that's probably not happening. The power that we're talking about this morning, the, the, this power that only God can provide. It is certainly available to every single one of us, but make no mistake about it, it is your choice. It is your move. It's on you to first put your faith in Jesus and then live radically in such a way that you are dependent and desperate for his power. This is not something that will be forced upon you. This is not something that you're going to stumble across by happenstance. There is an incredible level of intentionality here. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. I've basically been surrounded by Christians my entire life, starting with my parents and friends and camp counselors and people at church. There have been so many people that growing up that wanted me to be a Jesus follower. You might say that they were desperate for me to follow Jesus. But even with all of those people around me that were constantly trying to talk me into this, it didn't mean that Jesus was suddenly a part of my life. It was not until I made that decision to follow Jesus that a change started to occur, that I started to look at it less like religion, and I began to actually see it as a relationship. No, bad, no matter how badly my parents wanted it for me, no matter how badly friends wanted it for me, it didn't matter until I owned it, until I wanted it for myself. He is not going to force you into it. Jesus isn't going to talk you into it. He's not going to come into your living room and give you the 10 points on why you should become a Jesus follower. The convincing already happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. It's so tempting to think whether it be because you read something online, maybe you hear a sermon, maybe you actually crack open a Bible and you read about some crazy event where, where, where Jesus rose you know, a dead man to life. It's so easy and tempting to think of those moments. And I promise you, you're not alone. I, I have thought the same thing many times. To look at those situations and think, well, if he made it that clear to me, then obviously I would follow him. I mean, shoot, if, if he displayed his power in that way, I mean, if I had like a real miracle happen in front of me, then obviously I would be all in. I mean, I'd do whatever he asked me to do. And not to be too harsh, but to kind of be harsh. No, you wouldn't. Because guess what? During all these miracles, during all these times when Jesus just showed up in full force and did all these things, there were hundreds, thousands of people typically present in those situations. And guess what? Most of them still walked away. What more convincing do we need than a guy who predicted his own death and he predicted his own resurrection and then it actually happened. One of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Andy Stanley, and I love how he puts this. He always says, I am a simple man. If a guy predicts his own death and he predicts his own resurrection, 
and it actually happens, I just go with whatever that dude says. The convincing took place 2,000 years ago on a cross, and now it is an open invitation, and you have to decide whether or not to follow. And so again, Jesus, he, he poses to this man this almost embarrassingly obvious question. He says, would you like to get well? You look at him and say, come on, w- would you like to get well? And as cheesy and as maybe as churchy as this sounds, you have to decide and you have to answer that question as well. Would you like to get well? The problem is, though, that we're Americans and we have a lot going for us. We, we, we kind of all fall, just by nature of the fact that you are in America, we all kind of fall on the opposite end of the whole desperation spectrum. And we actually have the audacity to look at this invitation that, that Jesus gives all of us. Hey, would you like to get well and, and reject it and turn it down? See, this man, he had something that a lot of us lack. He knew that he needed help. He knew he needed help. But, but I would argue that it's no less of a no-brainer for every single one of us that are sitting here today, but it's just a matter of do you see yourself in as dire of a state as this man? See, we're surrounded by so many supports and so many buffers that we might live without ever facing our inability to save ourselves. And Jesus is as tenderly and as loving as he possibly can is looking at all of us going, did you realize how completely hopeless you are without me? And I know that's not an easy question to answer because again, we're Americans and we have a lot going for us, but we are sinful, hopeless people that have been separated from God, that have been separated from our creator. And the only way that we can be made right with him is by putting our trust, putting our faith in Jesus. But you have to decide ultimately if you even want to get well. If you see yourself as a person that needs help, it isn't until you see yourself as a sinner that you're going to see a need for a savior. And so in response to to Jesus' question, the man answers in a way that I don't think many of us would have answered. I I think if Jesus asked me this question and I was kind of in this guy's space, I I think I would have laughed at him. I would have snickered at him. I would have been like, are are you kidding me? Is, Is that a joke? But this guy answers far more graciously than I think probably most of us, or at least me. I won't throw that juju on you. He says, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. Imagine being so close to something that could completely transform your life, but yet it might as well be a thousand miles away. Hopeless, desperate. But then Jesus, then Jesus, the the Jesus factor comes rolling in. It says this, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat, and he began walking. He wanted to get well. He knew that there was something that needed to be made well. So Jesus unleashed the power that's only available when we give up our own way, and we're desperate for God to come through. And again, that power is still available today. So often, though, we're just not desperate enough to tap into it. 
At best, God's power becomes an add-on to our lives rather than our dependence. And so if you're sitting here today and this idea of, you know, putting yourself in situations where God has to come through seems scary and, you know, maybe even reckless, arguably stupid, I get that. But, but I would challenge you to look at the alternative. The American dream wants to make much of, of you. The gospel, the message of, of Jesus coming down, sacrificing himself on your behalf, predicting his own death, predicting his own resurrection, that it actually happens, that the goal of the gospel is to make much to do of him. And let's be honest, and, and I've said this before, and I, I know it has the ability to rub people the wrong way, but I'm just asking you to actually be honest with yourself. You're not worth living for. You're not all that great. And I say that to myself as well. And, and here's why I, I can say that and I feel very confident in saying that. Because like 20, 30 years after you die, nobody is going to remember you. You will become a distant memory. You will become an every once in a while where somebody stumbles across your picture and they say, oh yeah, remember when he, oh yeah, remember when she... You will largely be forgotten. If you're really, really popular, maybe give yourself 100 years, but that's it. Then you're gone. You're a blip on the radar. But God gives us all the opportunity to live our lives in such a way that it all points back to Jesus, the name who has withstood the test of time like no other name in the history of the world. We can shape our lives in such a way where he gets all of the praise and he gets all of the glory. It's scary, and I get this, it's scary putting yourself in situations where we feel like we're giving up so much, where we feel like we are abandoning ourselves, where we're desperate to come through, but the reality is we're not taking any of that with us anyway. I mean, if it's so many times where I know God is asking me to do something, I, I can very clearly feel him nudging and prompting and pushing in a certain direction. And I sit there and I have these debates over stuff. I'm like, yeah, but, but, but God, if I do that, that means I'm going to have to give up this. God, God okay, yeah, if, you, if you tell me that I have to do that, then that means, oh, I got to sacrifice this. And I lose sight of the fact that I don't get to take any of that with me into eternity. The only thing that you're taking with you are people. The, the, the people that because you were living so radically for Jesus, God used you to lead them closer to him. And remember, he is our heavenly father. For all, for all you dads out there in particular, is there anything better than just providing for your kids? I love providing for my children. Like, like I, I love fulfilling and helping my kids. And it's no different with God. Again, he is our heavenly father. He longs and he wants to provide for you. But the reason that, that we are so quick to say, you know, I've never seen God work in that way. I've never seen God provide in those profound ways that I read about is because we do not put ourselves in situation where he needs to come through. Everything becomes too comfortable. Everything becomes too secure, too easy. We become too self-centered. Later on in the book of John, Jesus says this. He says, I am the vine, meaning he's saying, Jesus, I am the vine. You are the branches, talking to all of us. He's like, we're all branches. How's that feel? You're all branches, okay. Those who remain in me and I in them, 
He said, hey, you you listen to those promptings, you listen to those nudges, you do what I'm asking you to do, you follow through with those steps of obedience, things are gonna go pretty well for you. In fact, you'll produce much fruit. You'll be used for for profound things. You'll be used for big things. And then he's kind of blunt with us. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, Jesus kind of sets this up in a pretty nice way, but he's pointing out something that I think we all kind of know. Again, you're not all that great. We are not all that great. The the only way that any of our lives will matter is if we make much to do about God. And living a lukewarm, American, secure version of Christianity brings no glory to God. It honors him in no way. Apart from him, We're not worth much. And so let's get desperate. We can change course. Let's live our lives in such a way where you are radically dependent on and desperate for the power that only God can provide. Think of it this way. The resources of heaven are ready and waiting for Jesus' followers who desire to make much of him in this world. It's on us now. It's our move. He already did his part 2,000 years ago when he died on a cross for you. I'm going to be vulnerable right now. Every single week, I have a pretty kind of standard routine that I go through to prepare these sermons. I write them on Tuesdays. On Tuesday mornings, I get there bright and early at the office, and usually I'm done by around 2, 3 o'clock. And then uh, on Fridays, I lock myself in a room and I talk to myself for about eight hours on end. I'm not kidding. I sit there and I say this out loud and over and over and over and over again. And every Tuesday, this is my biggest fear in life. I'm not just saying this for the sake of this talk. My biggest fear in life is that I will sit down on Tuesday and get my laptop in front of me and the light bulb will get turned off. That that God will truly give me nothing intelligent to say. Because I'm not smart enough to to, to crap, maybe some of you aren't these aren't very impressed by sermons, but like I don't feel like I have anything circulating around in my head that would be intelligent enough to communicate with hundreds of people at a time. And so my time on Tuesdays always starts the same way. I get on my knees and I beg God to come through. I just beg him, God, please give me something. Give me something. Give me something to write down. Give me some intelligent point to communicate. You know, show me something new in your word that you want all these people to hear. And then it's just like, and I plug, and I read, and I open commentaries, and I open scripture, and I read all this stuff. And by the end of every single Tuesday, you know, one, two, three o'clock rolls around, the same thing happens. I look at my notes, and I go, oh my gosh, you did it again. Not one of these were were like original thoughts. You, You showed up again. Let's get desperate for God to come through, because not only... Does it bring honor and glory to him? Remember the one, that the God that loved you so much that he sent his one and his only son to die for you. But we can't lose sight of this. When we live this way, our lives will be better for it. Why would we ever want to settle for Christianity according to our ability when the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is available to every single one of us. So let's be a church, a group of people, a community that are marked by our desperation 
where we put ourselves in situations that don't make a whole lot of sense, but because God asks us to make a move, we make the move. And then we sit back and we wait for God to do his thing. We are desperate for his power to come through.